Costa Rica Travel Pass is a paid sponsor of Mormon Discussion Podcast. Costa Rica Travel Pass helps families enjoy Costa Rica flexibly, independently, and affordably. A family of four can enjoy a week in Costa Rica for under $1,200 plus airfare. If you're ready for an out-of-the-bus vacation that your family will always remember, visit Costa Rica Travel Pass at CostaRicaTravelPass.com or calling 1-877-780-7277. Mormon Discussion Podcast is an effort to help Latter-day Saints like you strengthen your faith and to support you in your trials of faith. This podcast operates on the donations of listeners like you. To help this podcast, please consider making a donation at mormondiscussion.podbean.com on the right-hand side, about halfway down. Thank you. Come thou fount of every blessing Tune my heart to sing thy grace Streams of mercy never ceasing Call for songs of life Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion. Glad to have you with us today. You can reach me by email at realmormon at gmail.com. That's R-E-E-L-M-O-R-M-O-N at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook under LDS Leadership Principles. You can find this podcast at mormondiscussion.podbean.com as well as on iTunes. We also have our blog, themormondiscussion.blogspot.com. Today we sit down with Brian Hales. LDS author of Joseph Smith's Polygamy. We ask him the hard questions, fast and furious style, and he does an excellent job of answering them. We discuss polygamy, polyandry, Joseph's withholding of knowledge of the practice from the public and even general church membership, his relationship with Emma as he implements this principle, and many more. Tough questions get asked. You can find Brian Hale's book at Greg Coford Books. That's www.gregcoford, G-R-E-G-K-O-F-F-O-R-D, Dot com. And now we go to our interview with Brian Hales. Brian Hales, come to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? Hey, it's great. Thanks for having me on. Excellent, excellent. Glad to, to have you with us. Uh, for my listeners, Brian Hales is the author of a three-volume set titled Joseph Smith's Polygamy. And uh, Brian, it's just a, it's a privilege to have you on. My listeners are made up of people who who either delve into apologetic material or have doubts themselves and are trying to find ways to to do as Elder Holland said and lead with faith. And so today I just wanted to maybe talk to you a little bit about your book, uh, your three-volume set, uh, Joseph Smith's Polygamy, and also ask you some questions uh, in regards to polygamy that uh, I think that you're one of the few people on the planet that can provide some answers for us. So grateful to have you on. Well, thanks so much, Bill. I, like I say, I feel privileged to be a part of it and hope uh, that we can discuss some things that will be helpful to the listeners. So, A lot of the things I'm going to ask are things that critics bring up, but I want to give you and me a chance to kind of talk about them in a way that, that provides an opportunity to have faith. And the first one I wanted to start off with is Emma Smith. And one of the things the critics will bring up is that Emma uh, was spent most of um, her time very strongly against polygamy. And... Personally, I think the view is a lot more nuanced than that, and I wonder if you might expound a little bit on Emma and her her feelings about polygamy and, and her experience with Joseph delving into that that principle. 
You know, uh, it's an excellent question, Bill, because it's it's one of maybe a handful that people bring up all of the time, and and rightfully so. Uh, polygamy for the first wife um, is very very difficult uh, to understand, Emma. Um, there's there's a long view and a, and a short view of it. Um, maybe just short view is that she really struggled with it. She uh, didn't accept it in Kirtland. I believe Joseph's first plural marriage was to Fanny Alger in Kirtland, Ohio in 1835. And when Emma heard about it, she did not accept it as a bona fide plural marriage. Uh, it's, it appears she thought it was uh, probably adultery. And yet she forgave Joseph and they moved on. I think that's why Joseph didn't do any more polygamy until 1841, which was at least five years after it was discovered. In Nauvoo, Joseph Smith um, didn't introduce Emma to polygamy there until I think he, he felt she would be able to accept it. If you read section 132, it talks about how once a woman... Once you've explained this to your wife, she's under an obligation to accept it or she comes under condemnation. And Joseph waited until 1843 for that process to occur. And then Joseph, or then Emma did accept it. She really did. She gave Joseph four wives. But after she, uh, and, and one of them was Emily Partridge. And Emily later related in 1892 how the, after Emma put Emily's hand on Joseph's as part of the plural marriage ceremony. After that marriage occurred, that that night Emily stayed with Joseph. She slept with Joseph, and Emma was somewhere else in the in the house. And they asked Emily, "Well, where was Emma?" And Emily says, "Well, I don't know. In her room, I guess." But but she also related Emily did that after that night Emma just turned against polygamy. So even though. Emma tried very hard and she participated in four marriages. After that point, Emma just could not, could not seem to accept it. And so she, uh, she struggled. And you know the story that section 132 uh, is given in July 12th of 1843 to try to assuage Emma's concerns, but it backfires. And the next day, uh, if we read William Clayton's journal, Joseph and, and Emma got together, and I believe Emma was threatening Joseph with divorce. And from that point forward, Joseph took no new plural marriages, and I think Emma was saying, if you do, um, you're going to, I'm going to divorce you. But but she she actually did give permission in September for him to marry Melissa Lott, and then he was meal, married to Fanny Young, who was Brigham Young's sister, and that occurred in November, but that in the context was just so that she would have a husband in the next life. So we really do see a kind of a pattern uh, that Emma tried very hard. And we have one late recollection of her saying, look, I know it's right. I just can't do it. But but it's a right principle. And and that the last nine months of Joseph Smith's life, they lived a monogamous lifestyle outwardly. There were people living across the street who remembered, I didn't know that Joseph was a polygamist, um, even though at that point he had been sealed to quite a number of wives, some of whom actually lived in the Nauvoo mansion. So anyway, that's kind of a, an in-between answer on Emma, but uh, any any questions about that? So in regards to Emma, the one question I do have, Brian, is I realize that there are times where Emma is okay with it, there are times where she is vehemently against it, and, I, and, and so the critics painting it as a one-sided issue of Emma always being against polygamy isn't really the case. And if we can imagine being Joseph and making the assumption that the church is true, it wouldn't be easy to handle this 
uh, waffling back and forth on whether whether polygamy is going to be an okay principle that she's going to live with or it isn't. Where we also run into trouble with, though, is, and I'm assuming from your research that you would agree with this, there are times where Joseph is um, hiding the principle from Emma, correct? He's being, I don't want to say dishonest, but but she's coming to him telling him not to practice it, and he's saying at some, t- at some points he's, he won't do it anymore. Is that true? Well, it's it's a complex picture because what happens is John C. Bennett, who was an adulterer before he came to Nauvoo, and he shows up in Nauvoo and he keeps up his his uh, seducing of women. And at some point, he hears rumors about polygamy. It's my position that Joseph, Joseph Smith never once sat down with Bennett and shared with him about plural marriage. And there's very strong evidence supporting this that if, if somebody wants to disagree, fine, let's talk and, and talk evidence. But um, what happened is he, he comes out with this spiritual wifery that people are saying is polygamy at the same time that Joseph Smith is secretly introducing handfuls of people to restore plural marriage. Well, Bennett gets excommunicated. He leaves Nauvoo. And so during this whole time, Emma doesn't know that Joseph is teaching this this plural marriage teaching. But Joseph can outwardly say, oh, you know, John C. Bennett is a, a very evil man and his polygamy is is wrong and, and we must stamp it out. Because Bennett didn't know anything of what Joseph was doing. And, and so it kind of was a huge diversion. It, it, it really complicated Joseph's attempts to get people involved with plural marriage, but it also gave him a, an ability to just deny Bennett's polygamy, but at the same time without divulging that secretly he was doing eternal plural marriage, which was really very different. And I cover all of this in, in one of my chapters in volume, I, I don't know, volume one, I think, so. Okay, and and I, I don't want to mean to like pick on this issue. Um, I certainly, I used to think in the church that everything was very black and white, and I realize that there, there's just nothing in life or the church that is that way. But Joseph also is uh, at times telling those outside the church, even members within the church, that no, I'm not practicing polygamy. And again, that probably goes back to the same idea with with Mr. Bennett. But how do you reconcile Joseph's hiding the principle, not really coming forth and kind of sharing it? But I guess just to be blunt, how do you reconcile Joseph being uh, a little less than honest and forthright about the principle of polygamy? Uh, The denials are also one of probably the top five issues for Latter-day Saints, and understandably so. You know, Joseph was under the same obligation as we are today to not bear a false witness. Section one, section 42 talks, thou shalt not lie. And and Joseph tried not to. In fact, if you look at the denials, they're really, and in the words of Fawn Brody, they're circumlocutions. I love that word. I, I had to look it up. But <laughs> it, it you know, it's verbal gymnastics is how they're, they're trying to not He's trying to not outright lie, but he's clearly trying to also not acknowledge that he's practicing plural marriage because if he does that, he's breaking the state laws of bigamy and can be arrested. And when an example is that, uh, and he said this in uh, later on uh, in his life, I think it was 1844, he said, people accuse me of having seven wives when I can only find one. Well, you know, they weren't looking very hard because he'd been sealed to quite a number of wives at that point. But that's the kind of game that they tried to play. I don't think it was very effective. People read between the lines very easily. 
but it, it, it seemed to at least forestall the inevitable, which was Joseph Kaleidi with the state laws. Now, let me just mention that people will quote um, section 58 that says that if we uh, are keeping the laws of God, we will have no need to break the laws of men. And I'm paraphrasing. But mm-hmm. um, then later on, though, in section 98, the, the revelation states that that the laws that are constitutional are those which should be embraced. And this was the federal constitution, not state laws per se. And uh, the uh, the laws against plural marriage at that point were not constitutional. And, and the, the uh, revelation says, whatever is more or less than this, which is constitutional, cometh of evil. So, so in their eyes, they were not obligated, at least not from the revelations, to obey state laws that would have put Abraham and Jacob in jail had they lived in Illinois or, or Ohio in the 1830s and 40s. So from their standpoint, they didn't feel any any obligation to obey these laws, and it was just their job to try to uh, avert getting arrested because God had commanded them to send out missionaries and to build temples, which they couldn't do if they were incarcerated. We are with Brian Hales, author of Joseph Smith's Polygamy, a three-volume set. Um, Brian, when I joined the church, I joined the church at age 17. When I joined the church, uh, polygamy is one of the very first things I I learned about as I tried to look into the church's history. And as I discovered polygamy, I asked members of the church why why the church practiced it. And there were some reasons that I was given. So I'll give you some examples. One was that there were more women than men in the 1800s. And so polygamy provided a way for, for women to, to have access to a husband. Another one was that polygamy was not practiced until after the saints started immigrating to Utah. And it was done so that women whose husbands had died from exertions of the trek could be taken care of. Another one was that polygamy was illegal in the 1800s. I'm sorry, it was not illegal in the 1800s. And it was not a violation of the U.S. law or against the 12th article of faith, which supports obeying the laws of the land. So I was in some of these ideas. This was something I came across while I was reading the other day that helped me formulate some of these thoughts. But there was also a fourth one that said polygamy was an acceptable way to rapidly increase church membership. And those are some of the reasons I was given when I first joined the church at the age of 17 to kind of reconcile this issue. Any thoughts on those four reasons? <laughs> well, they're common, and I don't think any of them are accurate. Just uh, I don't know if that's okay to say. Yeah, but sure. they are, uh There is a chapter in Volume 3 where I go through a lot of these ideas. And and what's more important is um, with one of them may be partially accurate, but Joseph Smith gave three reasons, and actually all three of them are found in section 132, but we have later accounts of people saying, oh yeah, Joseph taught us that. And the three reasons that Joseph Smith gave, the first one is the easiest one to give to, to non-members or people who just need a quick snappy answer, and that is that it was a restitution of all things. And I imagine you actually heard sure, that as well. Absolutely. It's from Acts 3 and 21, where uh, the, the restitution of all things is is prophesied in that Abraham was a, a polygamist and therefore that plural marriage needed to be restored. Um, for Christians, it's, it's, it's a pretty easy answer. And, and even though they may not like the fact that Abraham, who was a friend of God and, and was obviously in, in high esteem in God's eyes, at least based upon the Old Testament and the New Testament references to him, 
uh, to say that polygamy was in any way a bad thing is is a tough sell. So um, that's the easy answer. I think of the three reasons Joseph gave, it was the least important. The second one kind of has to do with some of the things you said that in our theology, we believe that there's a premortal existence and that there were noble and great spirits there and they needed devout families in which to be born. And theoretically, plural marriage uh, allows for more uh, bigger families of, of believing uh, Latter-day Saints. Um, I've, I've yet to see the study, but it just common sense tells me if you've got a community and there are no single women, that every woman in there is is having a family, or at least uh, in the position to do that, you would probably have more children being born to these uh, devout Latter-day Saints. So that's the second reason, and, and it's important, but it's not the most important. And some authors have said, oh, Joseph Smith's polygamy was all about sex. Well, not really. Yes, multiply and replenish the earth was one of the reasons, the second reason, but not the most important reason. And the most important reason is one that we haven't heard a lot about, but it's plainly taught in section 132. And if you recall, section 132 is a very interesting section because it's, it's, it's about the question of polygamy is what gives us this answer. No question about that. But it's interesting because Joseph says, you know, what about these men with more than one wife? And so the revelation goes on and says, uh, it starts talking about authority. And, you know, that's kind of a detour, you would think. But it says that that you must be sealed to your spouse if you want to be with her or him in the next life. And then it says that people who aren't sealed to their spouse are singly and separately without exaltation in their saved condition to all eternity. So it tells us right up front that if you want to have your wife or your spouse, you've got to be sealed by this authority and everybody else is single. Well, apparently, uh, Joseph was anticipating there would be more worthy women and that they would not have spouses unless we were allowing plural marriage. And because if you read the remaining verses, you discover that it's okay for a man to have more than one wife, but the three instances of where a woman might have more than one husband are declared to be adultery. We call that polyandry. So we could argue, you know, is there going to be more worthy women than men at the judgment bar or, or what's going on with the demographics and, and the uh, the births of men and women and, and, and these kinds of things. But all we can say is that Section 132 says you've got to have a spouse and it allows a woman, a man to have more than one wife, which would allow an excess of, of women to have a husband in eternity and therefore they would be candidates for exaltation. And in my mind, that's much more important because it's eternal. And I think that is truly the driving force for why uh, plural marriage was established and commanded in that time. The thing I wanted to get at was the the first you know reasons I listed kind of as a group, they're bad reasons. And lots of uh, members of the church, as they encounter polygamy and they're given these reasons for it, it's it's when these reasons don't fit anymore that all of a sudden the, the issue becomes troublesome. And I think your offering of Section 132 and the, the insight into the reasons, the real reasons why it was practiced, help us to kind of re uh, reassemble our understanding of that principle. So I appreciate that. And I agree with you. I, I was told that it was a restoration of a biblical practice. Um, and I, obviously we can always go back to the fact that it was commanded by God. Uh, and those are good reasons at work. Percentage of people who practice. I've read in places where church leaders have mentioned that it was 2 to 5%. And I've seen other places where it talks about being like 20 to 30% of, of members of the church in the early church history who practice polygamy. 
Do you have a, 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 mo- a more credible number or a way to get closer at the real percentage of who practice it and how many? Well, my, my focus has been on Nauvoo, and I can tell you the numbers because in 1841, uh, there was one polygamist, Joseph Smith. He had one plural wife with whom he had sexual relations. And then this this will come as a surprise, but they also allowed ceilings in that day for just the next life. Um, if a woman was married to a non-member, she still needed an eternal husband, and she could be sealed to Joseph Smith or, or another man just for the next life. And we don't allow those today, but they did occur. But at the end of 1841, only Joseph Smith was a polygamist. And then by the end of 1842, there were two other polygamists living, Heber C. Kimball and Brigham Young. Each had one wife each. Vincent Knight, who died in July, had a wife. Uh, had one plural wife, so we had a total of four with one deceased, and that's at the end of 1842. At the end of 1843, the numbers start to escalate so that by the time of the martyrdom, which is June 27, 1844, there were 29 men and, uh, well, 30 men with Joseph Smith that were sealed and, and 85 women. So a total of 115 men and women had entered into polygamy at the time of the martyrdom. And that's in a, in a city of 10,000. And so when I read books, and there's one that's just recently been, been uh, published out of the University of Colorado, um, and they seem to paint that this, there's this big underground of plural marriage going on in Nauvoo, and I just don't see it. Now, there were, in addition to that 115 participants, there were probably two or three times that number who knew about it officially. And maybe that would constitute this big underground, but, but I, I really think that we, we get inflated numbers because people are believing things from John C. Bennett and others saying that there's, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people participating in it. The evidence just isn't there. Now, when you get to, uh, during the time between the martyrdom and the temple, you have hundreds more participating. And then in the temple, they pretty much doubled the overall number of polygamists. So by the time we're, where they're heading west in, in February, March, April of 1846, you've got, um, several, several thousand that are involved with this. Um, but to answer your question in Utah, um, some of the communities, the, the number of participants were easily 25 to 35 percent. And if you look at the church leaders, the men, up to 75 percent would have been involved with polygamy. And the two to five percent number is not actually a falsehood. Uh, he, it, it just kind of depends on how you're cutting, cutting the numbers. It, uh, but, but in actuality, if you want to just talk overall, uh, individuals who are participating in some way with it, the children, the wives, and the men, um, in, in a number of communities, it, it, it eclipsed 35%. So, just looks, depends on where you're looking in Utah. Gotcha. The case that, you know, in those areas where it gets that high, I mean, obviously we have a lot of single men walking around having trouble finding a spouse, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, it, it's, uh, I mean, we see with the FLDS and the Lost Boys that you just can't sustain plural marriage. And in fact, Brigham Young said that if, if people throughout the ages had kept their covenants with God, meaning they'd been, you know, participating, he said we wouldn't need polygamy. But because men would not keep the commandments that God has put polygamy on the earth, again, the implication is so these righteous women could be sealed to a righteous husband. What do you make of the quotes from early church leaders that at least are being portrayed as them saying that polygamy is required by God for exaltation. Now, what do you make of those? Well, I'd like to see him give us one unambiguous statement. There is none. 
they every one of the statements that they quote is a proof text, meaning they've taken it a little out of context. And I can I can uh, give you one example that uh, Joseph F. Smith was said. People have said you don't have to be a polygamist, and I want to you know tell you that I just don't think that's right. I'm paraphrasing. The problem is that if you go to the first part of that talk, um, you find him saying that it's only commanded when it's commanded. And it's not commanded on the people unless the Lord says that it must be so. So they're not giving you the full context. There's another very popular one that says that, um, that it's from Brigham Young implying that everybody is going to be a poly- saying that they, they need to be a polygamist. But earlier in the same talk, he says they will be a polygamist at least in their faith. There is no unambiguous statement that I'm familiar with where it says every man in the celestial kingdom must be a polygamist. And in fact, if you think about it, it would require twice as many worthy women as men. And I just don't think it's going to be those kind of numbers. I do not believe that every man in the celestial kingdom is a polygamist. I do not believe every woman's going to share her husband in the next life. There's not enough women to go around. Neither have any leaders ever said that. The Book of Mormon peoples were monogamists all the way through it. The New Testament people, so far as we knew, were monogamists. And to think that they're all going to be compromised for that, just it doesn't, isn't consistent with Joseph's other teachings. The next one I wanted to kind of run through, one of the things that really caught me off guard when I first joined the church and really started to delve into history was the, the first manifesto happens in 1890 with Wilford Woodruff. And we're, we teach that in church that that's the end of polygamy. And yet that's really not the full story. Polygamy tends to continue for, for some time. I believe it was John Taylor, correct, that that gave a second manifesto? Actually, um, uh, maybe just we'll back up just a little sure. bit. Joseph, Joseph Smith in Nauvoo um, taught that whoever learned about the teaching secretly was then obligated to obey it. But people who hadn't learned about it, weren't under obligation, obviously, and that's why we mentioned with Emma why he waited so long with Emma. But in 1852, it was out here in Utah, Brigham Young announced to the world, we are polygamists, and that made it a commandment on all of the Latter-day Saints. And so for the next uh, 38 years, it was a commandment. If, if we had lived during that period and wanted to be an active Latter-day Saint, we would have been involved with polygamy. Either our husband would have been or, or we would have had more than one wife. You only needed one extra wife. Um, there's no teaching that a man with more wives gets a better exaltation. That's a, an FLDS bunch of nonsense. Um, and, and they believe more children give you some greater exaltation. That is not a teaching traceable to Joseph or Brigham. Um, but what happened was it was a commandment until 1890, and the 1890 manifesto removed that commandment from the people. But the authority was still there. And for 14 years, under the uh, presidencies of Wilford Woodruff, Lorenzo Snow, and Joseph F. Smith, they were still allowed. And there's one man who controls this. This is taught very plainly in verses 7, 18, and 19 of section 132. One man controls it. In fact, section or verse 18 says that if you... Even if you use the right marriage ceremony, but if it's not through the authority of the one man, it is not valid, neither of force when they are out of the world. The reason I mention this bill is that I think this one verse, it's verse 18 of section 132, will be quoted to the FLDS and to all these other modern polygamists because they do not have authority. And I've actually written a couple of books on it and I have a website as well that deals with this. But what happened is in in 1904, when Joseph F. Smith was the church president, he went back to testify at the at the Smoot hearings, 
And frankly, he was grilled. And he didn't necessarily come across that well because they had very good evidence that these marriages had been occurring after the 1890 manifesto. But the church was once again publicly saying, oh, we're not doing that. And most of them were either in Canada or Mexico or on on a ship in the ocean or something, but there were some done more locally, and, and it was a problem. It's an embarrassing chapter for us. But when Joseph F. Smith came back, he uh, he stopped all plural marriages. He was the one man with the authority, and so that he, I believe, he did not prospectively authorize any more. And then, because the people weren't accepting that in 1911, 1912 is when they excommunicate excommunicated people for continuing. Matthias Kelly was dropped as well as John W. Taylor were dropped. He was excommunicated from the church for continuing, um, even though the one man said, look, you don't have authority to do this. So, All right, so and I don't want to stay too long on this issue, but so Wilford Woodruff receives this revelation in 1890 and tells the church this is the end of polygamy. And and yet, like you say, it, I mean, for whatever reasons, it continues a little bit, most of it outside the country. But how do you reconcile, you know, here's a prophet, he's receiving a revelation that it's supposed to end, and yet on some level there is still some condoning of plural marriages after that point. Um, not just the ones that have already taken place and being allowed to continue, but new ones that have been initiated. Well, and and again, the way I see it, and it is, it's, it's reconstructing history, because at the time that, that Wilfred Woodruff issued his manifesto, he I'm not sure he saw that as, as completely stopping it. I think it was somewhat of a political document, but he later said it, it came by revelation, so we can't just throw it away. But I don't see it as a declaration that we are completely stopping it all over the world forever and ever. Um, what he was telling the Latter-day Saints is God is not requiring this anymore. And so uh, you don't need to worry about it. But there were individuals who still felt like they wanted to participate, and the authority was there. And these things were done, uh, it was like five a year over the next 14 years. These weren't a lot. And during Lorenzo Snow's years, it was even less because he was not that, uh, I'm not even sure how much of the, how many of those he actually personally authorized, but his counselors did. But um, it was a small number because these people just were compelled. They wanted to do it for whatever their reasons were. Some of them stated that they they planned to do it before the 1890 Manifesto, but that wouldn't apply to some that were in 1902 and 1904. But the individuals just felt like they wanted to do it, and, and they took advantage of the authority, which was still available. Awesome. So, All right. So earlier you mentioned Fanny Alger, and, and I most of my listeners know who that is. She's the the first woman, aside from Emma, that Joseph has some type of marriage relationship with. And the sealing ordinance hadn't been restored at that point. I know I've heard you talk about this. Could you explain what the relationship was between Fanny and Joseph and what we're to make of that relationship, whether it's a sealing, whether it's eternity, whether it's time only? How does that work? The uh, the recollections of Mary Elizabeth Rawlins, and these, she's quite elderly at the time, but she was a plural wife of Joseph. But she related several times how he was commanded by an angel to to practice this. And the first time the angel came practicing or commanding it was 1834. And I believe the angel said, we want you to restore this, Joseph. And so he approached Fanny Alger, who was working in the Smith home, and discussed it with her. And that they did have a marriage. Now, 
the evidence of a marriage, and it's important to look at it because um, if it wasn't a marriage, and, and several authors have said it wasn't, it was just adultery, and there's, you know, the the approach is, oh, Joseph, you know, he was just a, a licentious guy, and he kind of let it get away from him there. No, no, I disagree. Show me the evidence of that. What happened uh, from the sources we have is that he approached Levi Hancock and gave him priesthood authority, not sealing authority, because as you said, it hadn't been restored yet. But Joseph had performed marriages before based on his priesthood authority, and this authority would have allowed a, a plural marriage. State authority wouldn't, because the state wouldn't allow polygamy. It would be bigamy, and they would they would prosecute it. But priesthood authority from God would allow monogamy or polygamy. And I believe that he gave that to Levi Hancock and that he performed a marriage ceremony between Joseph and Fanny Alger. But recently, thanks to the sleuthing of Don Bradley, um, who I hired as a research assistant for a couple of years to get all of the evidence, whether good or bad or, or from any source, but Don was able to get into the Andrew Jensen papers, and, and there it's a significant uh, collection, and it's important because he interviewed Eliza R. Snow and learned that Eliza was there. We can date the aftermath, the discovery of this marriage, to the time that Emma was there, and it was the spring of 1836, just weeks after the dedication of the Kirtland Temple. And she said that, that Eliza R. Snow was well acquainted with Fanny Alger. She was there. She knew what was going on. And what's interesting is when Andrew Jensen asked Eliza to make a list of Joseph Smith's plural wives, he handed Eliza R. Snow, and this was in 1886, handed the paper to Eliza. And in her own handwriting, Eliza R. Snow wrote Fanny Alger was a plural wife of Joseph Smith. I think this is significant because if it had been adultery, she would have, Eliza Snow would have known it. I think she wouldn't have written the name down. She would have just hoped nobody had, would learn about it. The fact that she considered, uh, Fanny a wife, I think is another strong indication a marriage ceremony was performed. Now, those who, who were, um, disbelieving will point to Oliver Cowdery, and we could even include Emma Smith, who when they found out about it, and the accounts are that Emma spied Joseph and Fanny together, perhaps engaged in some kind of intimate relationship. The, the language is not, is somewhat ambiguous, but that they both, that they discovered it, Emma discovered it, she could not be consoled, so Joseph gets Oliver there, and neither one of them accept this as a bona fide plural marriage. So some people will say, see, um, Oliver Cowdery said it was a dirty, nasty, filthy scrape. And that couldn't be a, a real marriage. Well, it could have been a marriage that Oliver just rejected as being legitimate, and Emma did too. So there's evidence for, for both sides to, to take a position. But for those of us who believe, like like I do, the, the fact that the evidence is strong, a marriage ceremony was performed, I think tells me this wasn't a licentiousness. This was a restoration of plural marriage and that it blew up so badly that this is why Joseph waited five years after getting the sealing authority to even use it on any right. kind of a marriage. Excellent answer. The, the trouble here is that critics like to paint that Joseph just had this spontaneous relationship with this with this uh, young lady. By the way, how old was she when, when Joseph and her had a, this relationship? Well, again, this is part of my books. I discuss, did it happen in 1831 or did it happen in 1835? We don't have good evidence. And so if somebody says it was in 1832, we probably can't dispute that. But the idea that they could have had this in 1832, and we know it wasn't discovered till 36. 
the idea that they could have hidden this for four years is, is right. to me very difficult to believe. Plus, I tie it into the 1834 uh, visit of the angel. So I think it was after that. I think it was 1835. But again, it's not a point that I lose sleep over. If somebody wants to say earlier, I think, well, it's pretty implausible that they could hide it that long. But, you know, believe what you want to believe. So she would have been 19 and 35 and and uh, 16 and 32. You know, the trouble is the critics want to paint this as a spontaneous relationship, this this affair. And yet, as you're pointing out, there is at least enough evidence to consider that there are those who are aware of it who called it a marriage. Um, we, you, you sound like you even point out that there were people who claimed to have been there and, and performed that or, or been part of that, correct? Well, we have an account from Mosiah Hancock that his father did it. It's not a great source. It, there's some weird things in it, but it describes how it happened. And I think this, this newer document where Eliza, who was there, personally says that it listed Fanny as a wife. I yeah. think that's significant. Yeah, so excellent. So at least, at the very least, we know that there's other sources to look at that offer an opportunity to see this as something more than, than Joseph just taking Fanny off and having an affair with her. Besides Fanny Alger in, in other polygamy that, uh, occurs, it seems like now we fast forward into the modern church that the church would prefer to talk as little as possible about polygamy. In fact, it, I almost get the feeling it would prefer not to mention unless it has to. What do you make of that? My listeners struggle with the fact that they encounter any of this discussion in church. And now all of a sudden when they go on the internet one day to do some research, they're finding some of this information and they, they wish they'd been told earlier. What do you make of, of how we disseminate information and, and when we choose to do that? Uh, again, a super question, Bill, um, and very important. But, you know, for me, it's not that hard. Uh, in section 19, verse 22, we're told that if you give meat to a milk drinker, they will perish. And I'm an anesthesiologist, and I can't tell you how many times I've been called to the operating room to put somebody to sleep emergently. And it's always a scary situation because if they got a piece of meat in the back of their throat and that gets into their trachea, their breathing tube, while I'm putting them to sleep, I've got a huge emergency on my hand. If it's down in the esophagus, it's not a big deal. But but I can tell you that the analogy is, is very strong, that if you give meat to somebody who can only handle milk, that it could be a real problem. And I I don't think anybody disagrees that uh, plural marriage, it's sex, it's religion, it's it's gospel meat. And up until just recently, the church's position has been, look, we're just going to put milky stuff with a little bit of meat in the enzyme and in uh, conference talks and church news and pretty much leave it to individuals who want the meat to kind of find it somewhere else. Because if it comes through an official channel, it'll be available to the saints in Zimbabwe at the same time that it's available to the high priests in Salt Lake City. And so they're, they're gearing most of their materials to those, those newly baptized saints in, in Mongolia or Brazil or Venezuela or wherever. But I honestly see a shift in this, and it's very important because my books, my trio, which are entitled Joseph Smith's Polygamy, um, History and Theology, can now be ordered at DeseretBook.com. They are stocked in the church-owned Seagull books right on the shelf, and they're in the BYU bookstore. And I think that's an amazing shift. I don't think, I, I really never dreamed that it would be on, on Deseret Books' website. But you can order it there. It's not in their stores and probably won't be, but you can find it there. And it's not hard to get through, you know, Seagull Book has it right on the shelf. 
Um, in addition, I know because I've, I've been asked to, to give some assistance that, that the church is working on uh, websites that will deal with every hard question, irrespective of, of what it is. I, my impression is they, I know they're dealing with polyandry, which is about as difficult a thing. That's where one wife has more than one husband. Um, and uh, they're dealing with that and some other very hard questions. It, it won't be up right away, but I know that they're looking to do that. The same, the brethren are worried about people getting um, rancid meat uh, on the web. Um, in other words, it's it's spin. It's a few historical facts that are true with a lot of spin. Uh, if you search Joseph Smith and polygamy, 80 to 90 percent of what comes up is not going to be very accurate or it's going to be so selective that people are going to read it and go, oh, my gosh, that can't be right. Or Joseph Smith was just a womanizer. Well, he wasn't a womanizer. I, I call him a reluctant polygamist. And I have some good observations to to support that. But but I see that the church is making a shift and they do want to provide the answers. And I will tell you that if, as somebody who has been researching this for a long time. I think when we get all of the evidence out there, Joseph does just fine. And I, I hope you don't mind me just mentioning, but Don Bradley, when he worked for me for two years, I, I spent over $50,000 on gathering the material for this, these books. But um, he worked for me for two years and, and I knew he was a return missionary, but he had big hair and I knew he wasn't going to church on Sundays because we would meet down in Salt Lake and exchange information. And and he wasn't going to church. He'd show up in Levi's and all. But anyway, I, I, to make a long story short, six months after we'd finished our work together, he calls me, says, Brian, I've been rebaptized. And he had asked for his name to be removed about a year before we got together. And it was an atheist moment. It wasn't anything to do with Mormonism per se. It was just religion in general. He had just turned cold against it. But um and this is kind of the neat part is that here's a guy who's seen every document dealing with Joseph Smith and plural marriage, and he's getting back into the church. And I think that's really where we will be. I mean, there's lots of question marks and things, but there is no damning evidence that, that, that shows Joseph was, was untrue to his, his principles and to the standards that he said. It's not there. And clearly when you get an understanding, I think he does fine. And, and that's what brought uh, Don back into the church. Excellent. I, I think you make some great points. One is that um, people in the church who who struggle, it's a small percentage of us who are delving into these deep issues and, and having a hard time with them. And as much as, as it's unfortunate and we want to reach out and help these people as much as possible, you can't just walk into a church meeting and give them answers in the midst of the larger group not being ready to handle that information. So that's a wonderful point. And also, to talk about Don Bradley, he's of course, a, a, a huge deep thinker himself. And like you say, to be delving into this stuff, going back to source material, and, and on some level it apparently even strengthens his testimony in the face of what many critics would say, you know, the more you read about this stuff, the more you're going to struggle. So I think that was a great point also. Um, I want to touch on a couple more things, and then I want to talk about just your work with the book. I, I hope people don't mind. I did this interview a little differently. I started off throwing you the hard questions right away instead of giving you a few softballs first. And the reason is is because in my communication with you, I, I felt like you're you're a good, quick thinker on your feet, that you would handle these things well, and you've done just that. So, again, I appreciate uh, you being with us. Thank you. We've got Brian Hales, author of the three-volume set, Joseph Smith's Polygamy. One of Joseph's wives is Helen Mar Kimball. This is the, the name that gets thrown a, around a lot by critics because of the fact that when she is married to Joseph. She's 14 years old. 
and the critics want to point to a few um, comments that they'll interpret the way they want to into Joseph having had a relation, relationship with her. Can you help us understand why that's really not the case and, and why there's a better way to understand that relationship? Yeah, what we know from the accounts is that Heber C. Kimball, Helamar's father, wanted a connection with Joseph and essentially offered uh, 14-year-old Helen Marr up to Joseph as a sealed wife. And the evidence, um, I think, up until recently has been pretty ambiguous. Were there sexual relations in that uh, relationship, in that uh, sealed marriage or not? Um, Todd Compton in his book says it's just ambiguous. Uh, George D. Smith in his book says, oh, yeah, there was sex there. But there is no clear uh, evidence for it, and what we had then was pretty ambiguous. But recently, um, in going through the temple lot testimony, and just so the uh, re- uh, listeners understand what we're talking about, in 1892, the RLDS Church sued the Church of Christ temple lot. This was a congregation of a few dozen people who own and still own the uh, temple lot in Independence, Missouri, the one that was set apart for a temple back in Joseph Smith's day. And the RLDS church um, said, we are the same church that Joseph Smith established, therefore we just own it outright because we're the same church and that was a church that bought it originally. The Church of Christ Temple lot were saying, you're not the same church and here's a proof, Joseph Smith taught polygamy and you don't practice it. So polygamy was a big deal in this court case. And so they came out to Salt Lake and they took depositions from uh, three of Joseph Smith's wives who each testified of having a full sexual polygamous marriage with Joseph Smith. But what's interesting is Helen Mark Kimball, who lived just blocks away from the deposition room, was not called. And I think this is huge. She had written two books directed at the RLDS church saying that Joseph did practice plural marriage and that they were wrong about in their stance against against the practice of it. But they never called Helen Marr to, to testify, even though they did call uh, three others, one of whom lived in Logan, Utah. Lucy Walker was called and by Wilford Woodruff personally to come down and testify because the, the church leaders wanted to prove that this indeed was happening. But if Helen Marr had gotten in there and not testi- been able to testify of a sexual relationship, that testimony would actually have hurt the position of the Church of Christ Temple lot. And I know a book review that will be coming out sometime soon says, oh, the church was too embarrassed to talk about, you know, plural marriage and sex with a 14-year-old. And I say baloney. You know, the the church leaders were very uh, anxious to show the RLDS that they were false. And it is true that a marriage in Joseph Smith's day with a, uh, between a man and a 14-year-old woman was eyebrow-raising, but it was not scandalous. And I totally disagree with anybody who says that they would they were holding Helamar back because they were afraid that she would reveal that she had sex with Joseph and, and that would be too embarrassing to the church. I don't think that's the case. The reason they didn't call her is because the marriage was never consummated. That's my position. Some critics of polygamy will say that Joseph never taught polygamy during his life and that it was a creation of Young and that even these interviews later on is the work of Brigham Young and the church to defend its current position at the time. Do we have solid evidence that says, yes, definitely polygamy occurred um, in Joseph Smith's time? Or is there some room for that to kind of be up in the air? Um, interesting question, Bill. The uh, 
if we want to go to and talk about Joseph Smith's sealed marriages, plural marriages, um, there are only two documents that actually discuss the, the doctrine behind it, and that's section 132, the Revelation, which of course the RLDS church said for forever, for many decades, was, was a product of Brigham Young, though the evidence is quite strong that Joseph C. Kingsbury did copy the original, which was written by William Clayton. Um, the other document is William Clayton's journal, and then we have a few journal um, entries from Nauvoo that deal with uh, the, the actual ceilings themselves being performed. Um, but there are so much uh, later recollections that it's it's a hard sell. In fact, the RLDS Church, now the Community of Christ, they, they acknowledge that Joseph Smith was a, a, a polygamist. Um, there is a fundamentalist break-off. Uh, Richard and Pamela Price have uh, written a book called Joseph Smith Fought Polygamy, and actually the research in it is really good. Um, they've done some excellent work on the research side, but it's just an untenable position. There's just way too much. I've written three volumes right. on it, so you, you, you've got a lot of denial to get into if you want to take that position. I'm gonna I'm gonna throw out the word polyandry, and I, that's probably one we could talk for two hours on just itself. I don't want to do that. I just want to briefly throw out a couple of thoughts, share what I learned as kind of just a, a surface understanding from reading your material. Looking at polyandry, Brian. It's one of those issues that very few members of the church were aware of the fact that Joseph and perhaps others were sealed to women who were already legally married to other men. And from reading your material, just a real surface understanding would be this, that Joseph is not sealed to any uh, woman that is married to another man where both Joseph and the other man are having sexual relationship with this woman. Outside of that, is there anything about polyandry we need to know in regards to how we can better understand it so it doesn't strike us so harshly? Well, the, the short version is that to understand it, we have to introduce a couple of new ideas for Latter-day Saints. And I already talked about one of them, and that is that in Nauvoo, uh, ceilings for just the next life were allowed in a, in a number of cases, and Joseph Smith wasn't the only one. And Joseph Smith was sealed to 14 women, by my count, who had legal husbands at the time that they were sealed to Joseph. And of those, I believe that 11 of them were just for the next life. Now, some of those women were were married legally to non-members or inactive members. And so we can understand why those, and that's two or three of the 11, were sealed to Joseph Smith. But it is puzzling. It's strange to me that another six or so of the women um, would have chosen Joseph as their eternal husband and have been legally married to one man who was active in the church and then sealed to Joseph Smith for the next life. But Joseph Smith taught very plainly, according to Lucy Walker, one of his plural wives, a woman would have her choice. And it's interesting that none of the men complained. None of the women complained. None of the participants complained about what was going on. They knew what was going on, and it sure looked strange to me. But um, but that's what that was happening, is that these women were sealed to Joseph just for the next life. These weren't marriages for this life. In fact, we could take these names right off the list of his plural wives for this life in reality. But there were, I think, 11 of the 14 fell into this category. There's two or three of them that it's not as clear, and I discussed these. But the three women who were sealed to Joseph for this life and for the next, 
these women uh, were probably sexually involved with Joseph. And the important point here is that Joseph Smith taught that the new and everlasting covenant causes all old covenants to be done away. Section 22, verse 1. That was discussing baptism, but it also applies to the new and everlasting covenant of marriage. So a woman who has a legal marriage covenant and a new uh, marriage in the new and everlasting covenant would not thereafter have two husbands according to the church and according to Joseph Smith's teachings she would only have one husband and that would be the one in the new and everlasting covenant because the other covenant would be done away so that woman would no longer be sexually involved with her legal husband and in th- there were three of these cases two of the women had already separated from their husbands so this ceiling did not change any dynamic between them the third one is a woman named Mary Heron and we just don't know anything about her we barely know there was a connection between her and Joseph and i'm hoping that some researcher will come up with some new data on her but those who say Joseph practiced sexual polyandry which is basically everybody who has written on this topic up until you know the last few months um, says Joseph practiced sexual polyandry, and for them, I would challenge them to find some supportive evidence and deal with all of the contradictory evidence. Gotcha. I do not believe it happened, and I do not believe that Joseph would have tolerated it in himself or others. Gotcha. Um, there's a lot of rumors going around in the midst of uh, Joseph's um, later years in the polygamy. One, we have a, a rumor about abortions from Sarah Pratt, that any time Joseph got someone pregnant, that... Um, Dr. Bennett was going to be there to take care of that. Mary Elizabeth Rollins uh, Leitner talks about there being at least, uh, I think, three or four children that she thought were Joseph's children, even though uh, nobody else was uh, knew about it. And then we also have a comment from Benjamin Winchester about Joseph uh, sending the brethren out on missions so that he could then approach their wives. Are these just rumors or is there any uh, strength to any of these three arguments? Glad you glad you saved the easy questions for last here, Bill. I appreciate that. Now, actually, there's there's good responses to all three of these. First, the abortion thing. Um, Sarah Pratt is not real reliable, but Bennett probably Bennett had obstetrics uh, training, and he it sounds like he had what we would call a curette. Um, if you've ever heard of a DNC, the C part of the DNC is curatage. If you do it for to create an abortion, or we we uh, they call it a DNE, but um, he probably could have and may have done that. Now, the the idea that Joseph was afraid of of children being born in polygamy is nonsensical to me because one of the reasons, as we recall, was multiply and replenish the earth, and they could, I think, uh, much more rationalize the morality of just hiding the woman and and uh, and creating some other uh, explanation for why this baby appeared than they would ever tolerate uh, the performance of an abortion in Nauvoo. It's just not a very reliable... Uh, even Thon Brody, I think, discounts that as, as being plausible. Um, the issue of children, and I think Mary Elizabeth Rollins says there were two or three that she knew of. Um, if you go to my uh, chapter 11 in verse, uh, in volume one, I outline two known, uh, offspring from Joseph's plural wives. One of them is a, 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 was born to Olive Frost, and she and the child died before they left Nauvoo. We don't even know the gender of the child, but we've got a couple of, of attestations for that birth, and I think that's reliable. The other one, interestingly enough, is Josephine Lyon, which was born to Sylvia Sessions Lyon, and she came out to Bountiful and married a guy named Fisher. 
And if you know any fishers from Bountiful, quite honestly, I wonder but what they might have Joseph Smith's DNA in them because I think it's legitimate. Not everybody does, but I think the evidence is very strong that she was the offspring of Joseph Smith. In that chapter, I also outlined 18 alleged children to Joseph, and, and there's none of them are strong, and DNA testing has shown that six of them were not, and those are the most likely. They have done DNA testing on Josephine, uh, the problem is there's cross-marrying between the two lines prior to Joseph, and so there's no way to say. But there is a correlation there, but they can't say for sure that it was Joseph and Sylvia, but it could have been somebody prior to those two generations. And then you had a third question. What was it? Benjamin Winchester and the Brethren Son on Missions. Right. Of the 12 polyandrous husbands listed by, and we could expand it to the 14, uh, uh, of the 14 men whose wives Joseph was sealed to, the polyandrous husbands, of those, um, 11 of them were not on missions, we know, when Joseph was sealed to the women. And only one of the cases do we know Joseph uh, that the man was on a, a mission, and that was um, Orson Hyde. And he'd been on his mission well over a year when Joseph was sealed to his legal wife, Miranda. We don't know what kind of a sealing it was. Was it eternity only? And we have two dates for her, so we're not absolutely sure about this earlier date. The second date was after um, Orson was bat. So there's three of the 14 that and that might have been on missions. One for sure was. The other two were in, on missions during that period, but we don't know for sure when the marriages occurred, so we can't say it. So Benjamin Johnson, and many people echo that same thing. I think Bennett even said it as well. Um, they, they make this claim. It is just not documentable. There's just not documentation to, to support that it happened. Awesome. You, you answer these questions so fast and furious. You obviously know your stuff well, so... Uh, it, it's just a, a privilege to talk to you. One more curveball, and then I want to ask you a couple of, of softball questions. Uh, the curveball is this. Should my wife have to worry that polygamy is going to be an eternal principle, and when she gets to the other side, that she's going to have to, to follow that? No. I do not believe that she uh, will have to ever be forced to practice plural marriage. As, as I alluded to earlier, um the the women that are going to go to the celestial kingdom that we know of are going to come from this earth. That Joseph Smith indicated this in section one thirty or thirty one, um, and so I don't think that there's going to be enough women, extra worthy women, that are going to be exalted in the highest portion of Joseph Smith's celestial kingdom to give every man two wives. I just don't see that, and I don't think that it will ever be commanded again. If we if we look at the church's support of Proposition 8 in California a few years ago, that proposition also excludes plural marriage as much as it does uh, same-sex marriage. And so I just don't see it restored until the millennium, and then it will be prescribed for those who want to enter into it and I just wouldn't lose any sleep over that at all. Gotcha. The Book of Mormon, Jacob, seems to indicate that it's the exception to the rule, and it sounds like you're saying that, that you know, in all dispensations, that's the exception to the rule. I would agree. Okay, excellent. Um, how long did it take you to put your three-volume set together? Do you know, I started six years ago, and uh, it, it took the entire time. I I spent thousands of hours in it. And if I were a better writer or a better researcher, it probably wouldn't have taken so long. But I'm an amateur historian and an amateur theologian. And and I'm grateful, though, to Levina Fielding Anderson, who edited Volumes 1 and 2, and to Lloyd Erickson, who edited Volume 3. I'm very grateful to Greg Coford Books, because I can't think of another 
uh, publisher who would have allowed this type of a project to go forward. And we, he knew it wasn't going to make a lot of money. I hope we break even on it. We haven't yet, but we have had some pretty good sales, at least out of the, out of the gate. So we'll have to see how it goes. It, it's interesting. I've uh, had conversations with, uh, uh, couple of people over at Greg Coford Books. We're going to be interviewing some other authors that uh, that have books for sale with with them, and so we certainly want to push uh, for people to to take a look at their site. And of course, as you mentioned, your your three volume set is available there with Greg Coford Books. Um, you talked about having Don Bradley assist you in your research, and uh, I'm a big fan of uh, of Don. His view on the the 116 lost pages, his view on the Kinderhook plates, which I think is phenomenal. Uh, and groundbreaking. How did you happen to come across him and get him involved in the project with you? You know, we intersected back in the early 90s when I was researching fundamentalist polygamy, and I employed him briefly to get some some research on that topic, and he came up with some really good stuff. And and as I started this project, I was compelled by polyandry. I never felt good about the the traditional Fon Brody view of polyandry. It just never felt right to me. And so I wanted the answer, and, and that was how I started off uh, with what eventually was three volumes. And as I began to see the uh, how much research was going to be needed, there was no way for me to go down to the church history. Uh, well, it wasn't the library then, church his, uh, church office buildings, and do the research. And so I, I was able to find Don again. And uh, like I say, we were... We were able to just employ him full-time for nearly two years. We sent him back to Yale to the Mike Quinn collection a couple of times, and he was all up and down the Wasatch Front. Um, and just he's an amazing researcher and an incredibly smart guy. He, um, I've acknowledged him uh, in Volumes 1 and 2 because there are so many of the ideas that are presented in there are Don's ideas. And the books just couldn't have been written without Don Bradley. That's great. So you're an anesthesiologist professionally, correct? That's correct. So how does a guy who is working in the medical field as an anesthesiologist become an expert on polygamy? Do you know, back in 89, a member of my family was excommunicated for joining a polygamist, uh, with, for joining the All Red Polygamy Group. And that, that was back when, and she, she came to me and says, Brian, I think this is true. You know, here's their, their teachings. And I went through them and, and considered, you know, joining, but I'll be honest with you, I never was impressed with their claims to authority. Section 132 states plainly, one man controls it. And I, I tried to say, well, how did your guy get it? At that time, it was a guy named Owen Allred, a very nice man. I met him, a uh, very kind individual. But I said, where did he get this authority? How did it leave the church? And I was just never satisfied with any of their answers on it. I'm still not today. I, I think that's their Achilles heel. They, you, you can be sincere and you can have a burning bosom. And you can have a great tradition, but none of that can compensate for the lack of authority. And so anyway, I didn't partake of it, but that's how I got interested in the topic. Gotcha. It's kind of a neat point you make that our Father in Heaven and the plan of salvation and understanding what things come from Him and what don't, He gives us several different things to lean on. It's almost uh, the statement of being in the mouth of two or three witnesses. Rather than just going by uh, a burning in the bosom or just going by a, a, a dream that one has, one also has the opportunity, too, to know that where the authority is rested. Um, and so I think for my listeners, as they maybe struggle with tough issues and try to figure out their way, there, there's there's the Holy Ghost, there's the Scriptures, there's uh, multiple directions one can get answers. Um, obviously, working on this project helped your testimony as well, correct? 
Oh yeah, yeah. I uh, I've come to appreciate Joseph Smith as an amazing individual, uh, amazing prophet, uh, and a true prophet. Um, he wasn't perfect, and if anybody thinks that I've portrayed him as being a perfect individual, I don't believe that. I think he stumbled. I don't think he was immoral. That's the stumbling that didn't occur. I don't think he broke the law of chastity ever in his life. And if he had, then I would have, you know, been worried he couldn't have received the revelations he did. And that's the argument some people say, oh, yeah, you know, he just repented. No, I don't buy that. I think he was a chaste individual according to God's laws and the revelations that, that he was receiving, I think, which are, are valid revelations. So, no, my, my convictions have, have greatly strengthened through this process. Excellent. One final question. Lots of my listeners, are, if, they were to, if we were to ask them what their top issues are that bother them, uh, polygamy slash polyandry would be on that list. And so for those who are struggling with doubts, with questions, and obviously we're going to point them towards purchasing the book because there's just a ton of answers in there. Uh, having had a chance to check out your website, which if you can remind me where that's at, I have two. One is mormonfundamentalism.com. The other is josephsmithspolygamy.com. And I'll, uh, I've done both of them myself. They're pretty homegrown, but the information on there is solid. And I'm working on upgrading them just so that you will know. So, uh, but the information is real good. The uh, references are all, all reliable there. Excellent. The Joseph Smith, uh, you said josephsmithspolygamy.com? Correct. Okay. I, I was on that one. It was probably three or four weeks ago and just an amazing amount of information there. Um, and like, you know, as we stated, putting together three volumes on polygamy is just amazing. Um, what would you say to those who are, who are struggling? Well, I, I, I'm not here to pitch the books. I apologize. They're so spendy. Um, but if you really are bothered by this, then just get my books because all of the documents are there. You don't have to agree with me. But if you if you wade through all of those, and I should warn you that I tell people my books are part of my full anesthesia services. <laughs> um, I hope that's not true. But But even if you want to disagree with me, the evidences are there. And you can read them all and make your own decision. You don't have to take Brian Hale's opinion or my interpretation. I also list the, the books try to do three things. One is to include all of the evidences, and, and most of the reviews that have come out are, are saying I didn't miss anything, and I don't think we did. In, in 10 years, if I look back and see we've had 90% of the available documents, whether they're supportive or antagonistic, whatever they are, I've tried to include them, but in 10 years, if we look back and say we had 90%, and I'm happy. The second thing it tries to do is to present the traditional view, and too often that's the Fawn Brody view or the view that Joseph was a womanizer. But then I also use new evidences, and there's quite a few new things in these volumes that nobody's published before, and I present those, and then I give my own interpretation that you're free to disagree with, and the good news is that if you disagree, you'll be able to quote things that are in the books, because it's all there. I haven't pulled any punches. Everything is there, and you can make your own decision, but as I said earlier, I think when all the evidence is there, there, Joseph Smith does just fine. Excellent. Uh, Brian Hales, author of Joseph Smith's Polygamy, uh, a three-volume set. We talk about Greg Coford books. We talk about them being available at DeseretBook.com as well. Just a wonderful opportunity for my listeners who want to just delve into the original source material uh, to find uh, all of it in one place. Uh, Brian, you've just done an incredible job, and I think you've done a great service to to this issue uh, for future historians. So thank you so much. Thank you for letting me be on the program, Bill. You're very kind. Thank you. Come thou fount of every blessing. 
Tune my heart to sing Thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount. I'm fixed upon it, mount of Thy redeeming love. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Here by Thy great help I've come, and I hope. By Thy good pleasure, safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger, interposed His precious blood. That day when freed from sinning, I shall see Thy lovely face, clothed then in blood-washed linen. How I'll sing Thy sovereign grace! Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Take my ransomed soul away. Send thine angels now to carry me to realms of endless day. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor! Daily I am constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for Thy courts above. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for Thy courts above.